the game. If you are the healer, means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. Did you know that David Fincher was nominated in the years 1989 and the years 1990 at the VMAs, the Video Music Awards, that there were um, five or there were five nominees in 89 for Best Director for a Music Video and four nominees in 1990 for Best Director in a Music Video and David Fincher was nominated for three of the five and three of the four. Wow. Years. My friends, he, he was, was hot. He was hot. He was beasting. He was, yes. He was a, yeah. In 89, he was nominated for Express Yourself by Madonna, which won Best Director, but also Real Love by Jody Watley and Roll With It by Steve Winwood. Oh, uh, big, big Winwood head. Big Win Woodhead. And then in 1990, he won for Best Director for Vogue by Madonna. But he also directed Janie's Got a Gun by Aerosmith and The End of Innocence by Don Henley. We're also <laughs> in there. That is a clash of tones. Don the Henley. clash of and- tones. And what's amazing is the other nominees were Michael Patterson and Candace Reckinger, who directed Opposites Attract by Paula Abdul. And David Fincher, as we all know, mm. uh, as we all, as everyone knows, as everyone knows. <laughs> really made his name on Paula Abdul music videos earlier on prior to all of this and probably got him the Madonna gigs, which were at the time, some would say, the biggest music video gigs the Beyonce level gigs, if you want to say, if today's parlance. Some so would on, say that Madonna oh, was in vogue. Uh, some. Hello, and welcome to the award winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performers in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. Uh, hi, loser. <laughs> hi. Supposed to say oh, hi, idiot. hi, idiot. Hi, idiot. That's yeah. The you're right. That's our podcasting love I, language. Um, <laughs> sorry, I I'm noticed sorry. that. I know. I've seen. I've seen this movie like forty times, <laughs> and I noticed that for the first time. <laughs> this Ew, time no, because I had the <laughs> subtitles on on the TV. That was the only reason I noticed it. <laughs> Welcome to the academy. The the I, uh, and I think we should probably you know just like say it. You know, this is going to be the episode where we. You know, it's take. You know, this movie came out in 1995. We're gonna figure out what was in that box. This is mm, it. This, this is, the, is it. This is it. You know, after all oh, this man. time. <laughs> yes. I'm excited. I'm. Ex- this was. This was. Uh, man, great. I haven't seen this movie since college. I'm glad we're really. I'm glad we're doing this because, like, um, I feel like a lot of these David Fincher movies, formative films. You know, he's obviously like a director that looms large over the current crop of directors and uh it's it'll be cool just to revisit a lot of movies i have not seen since i was like you know 16 to 20 that was like oh, my wow. venturing it feels like a lot of like you know seven fight club that's a uh, oh, that's a really um that's a good way of thinking about it in you mm-hmm. know in that basically um i think he has a style 
that is um very exciting to the teenage to college male mindset. Yes. And and I remember even like around the time I was in college and I've mentioned kind of getting into like Dogma 95 and Lars von Trier and Jean Ooh. Godard and stuff like that. <laughs> I kind of rebelled against David Fincher who, you know, I mean, we'll talk about it at the time. I saw Fight Club two days in a row on its opening Ooh. weekend. We liked it so much opening night, we went back the next night. Um, Seven was just, you know, a massive, like, tip of the tongue, like, along with, you know, Pulp Fiction and Boogie Nights and Fargo, like, in the 90s of, like, the first movies I, like, loved and were, like, adult movies. Yeah. I I know that, like, I love the 90s stuff is really hackneyed at this point, but, man... That was a good decade for movies. That was there was some cool stuff, in it, and Fincher kind of toes the line between the like, you know, like I mean, last week we did the blockbusters of all blockbusters of the nineties mm. and the Armageddon and um, Con Airs, but you have to remember that Dave Fincher came from the exact same world mm. as Michael Bay and the rest of that crew. They, that mm. propaganda films, anonymous content, music video, commercial worlds, and that, you know, and their predecessors were the Scott brothers and the RSA mm. folks, which means oh, yeah. this series, you want it darker, the David Fincher story fits right in because David Fincher is the link between generations in that. But I think what separates David Fincher is his meticulous quality, his attention to story and detail. And the fact that, unlike even Ridley Scott, I think we get a very good idea of who David Fincher is from his movies. Man, that is a, yeah, you 100%, uh, yeah, watching Seven, and you can even make the argument for Alien 3. Yeah. You you get um, a sense of his overall vibe and what interests him as an artist specifically, for sure. And I think that is what separates him, and that's what makes him an Academy-level, a Pantheon-level filmmaker compared Mm -hmm. to some of the other. Even, like, the great music video directors, like, Let's, I mean, and these these are really great directors like Mark Romanek or um, mm. Michelle Gondry or even heaven forbid Spike Jones. Ooh, like, throwing shots. I think I and I I like all. I, no, I, I know. I, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. all of them, but I feel like David Fincher has such a distinct artistic sensibility that even though he doesn't write his scripts, even though he definitely very very clearly comes from an advertising music video background what separates him is this like the strength of personality in his films and the fact that i mean and this is completely personal aesthetically this is my jam like just yeah it is man I, you're you're you you're you're this is grim dark i i applaud it's like i i made the choice of watching this film really late at night like 10 30 and it is the film movie we are about to watch it's not a it's not a night movie watch it during the day or else <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time sleeping you're gonna be like morgan freeman <laughs> tossing, your, tossing your switchblade against the dartboard <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like, and I'd say that as a compliment to the movie. It's a nice place to be sometimes. I do like. Yeah, and yeah, I, I was in it, man, because I watched Mikhail Haneke's Code Unknown, <laughs> then Ruben Oslin's play in succession after Seven. Oh no! And I was just thinking about it. It's like I, maybe I am a true sicko, but it's the same way that I like sad music so much. Mm-hmm. It makes it like. Sadness feels good in a place like this. We'll just put it that way. I yeah, mean, like, it's, <laughs> I think there is like this thing, even in my own kind of like attempts at filmmaking and like the movie we're trying to get off the ground this year. Like I've kind of accepted I am not a Richard Linklater level humanist. That that's what we need all stripes, and, man. And I think you have to like as a. I think like that's okay. Yeah, like accepting that because I think we live in a time where you and I kind of texted a little bit about this about seven. Like, you imagine like the bomb that would be felt at the box office if seven came out in twenty twenty three, not oh, unchanged, but with like you had to remember, like these are stars in this movie. This is a big budget movie that got a huge. It's not some indie like art film. This is a big budget movie that got released yeah, they, <laughs> in like it was the and, you know, we'll talk about it was a massive hit too. It, it is crazy that such a grim film resonated with so many people. It is like, yeah, it's, it's truly because you watch this and it is like the saddest city in this the saddest punishing, universe. Punishing yeah. movie grueling and well it's like man you know what a great way like like so this movie like i i saw that it was like filmed in la and it feels like and i say this as a compliment it kind of feels like la cosplaying is new york and like an interesting like, like those vibes make it so it feels so dire like it just it, it just like the, the the urban decay i feel like it's just it but if you ugh, dri- if you drive downtown la where a lot of this was filmed Mm -hmm. even today yeah in in all of their attempts to make downtown la a welcoming fun place that they have tried yeah if it rains it fucking feels like this now it's (laughs) 100 yeah like blade runner feels great compared to this i would give me the blade runner world before this world any day of the week absolutely we should say it now Seven yes. is currently playing on HBO Max and is also available in all mm-hmm. of the phys- physical formats mm-hmm. that you can play. Um, if you are a young person who has not yet seen Seven and you are a listener to our show, above any other movie we have discussed on this show, I think, I would suggest you stopping the podcast right now and watching this movie. You deserve... Yeah. To be surprised and shocked and horrified by everything that follows in this movie. It was, and, man. So, oh, yeah. and let's, let's, let's say this now. Send us an email at the Academy Academy Podcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at the Academy and immediately let us know how you feel about yeah. all of it. <laughs> Which guy do you uh, relate to the most? Are you a Morgan Freeman guy? Are you more of a Brad Pitt guy? Or- Perhaps, are you perhaps the surprise third lead of the movie guy? And 
almost, yeah, it's like, Patrick just said it, but, like, try to erase that from your head on who Ugh. might be arriving in this movie, who is not listed in the opening credits. Oh, okay, you know noted. what? I'll put a little beep in it. I'll, I'll put a, yeah. I'll put a it beep over was, that. It, it was part of the marketing of this movie, as someone who followed the marketing of this movie very closely when it came out, that it was recommended to critics and in all advertising to not reveal who the third lead of this movie is. Mm. To keep it a terrifying surprise. Man, yeah, yeah he is, yeah, it's like, it's, he is, and maybe, and maybe part of it is like because uh, of the recent events. There are new, yeah, there are new elements, but at the time, he was just known as a all-star character actor. Oh, yeah, and he, he's bringing it. It's, yes, yeah, yeah. might be my favorite of his performances. Period. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's what's crazy too is um, uh, maybe I should say. Well, I'll just say like he's not in the movie that long, which for some reason it's a testament to like the uh, the strength of the character and the acting. I totally in my head, in my mind's eye, I remember him being in the movie for like an hour yeah. or an hour and a half or something. And then he, he, he watched he this. Looms like, he yeah. looms large. He looms large. He's a big part. <laughs> okay. But that's small so that part. Was, so now that we've said that, let's cut to David Fincher really quickly. If you've not listened to our Lance Henriksen Halloween episode, which kind of got the ball rolling on all of this. Go back and check that out, too, because that gives you primo coverage on some of David Fincher's early life, early career, and the spite and anger and cynicism that must have built up inside of him based on his Alien 3 experience, which all is unleashed in a tidal wave with this film. Like a can of... Fake snakes and peanut brittle. He is, it yes. is just unleashed to an unknowing audience. Like, yeah. yeah like <laughs> if you get freaked out by chattering teeth, get ready. Um, David Andrew Leo Fincher, born August 28th, 1962 in Denver, Colorado. I, it makes me feel very old that he is a 60-year-old man <laughs> and that I have been a fan of him for as long as yeah. I have been because it makes me feel old as well he still seems though spry and impish mm-hmm. modern and, feels and yeah he's modern as can be so hopefully we and excited about filmmaking so hopefully we get many 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 a year left of him being continuing to be in his prime oh he's uh, gonna live to be a hundred i can already i'm knocking on wood right now to guarantee it he looks great too he looks yeah. healthier than ever like right now if you look at him like in the mank promo like promotional stuff he had to do he he seems he seems ready to move yeah. uh when he was two years old he moved to san Al- anselmo california where george lucas was one of his neighbors whoa which is a key part of the david fincher uh uh origin story another key issue is that he has pointed out numerous times the thing that made him want to make movies, you know, you've heard it before, 2001 Space Odyssey or Star Wars or Jaws or what have you. Mm-hmm. He saw a documentary on the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and just saw the behind the scenes stuff to de-glamorize it. The magic of movies 
is not so much his bag. Oh, God, it we need is an... the technical force of making movies. We need an anti-Fablemans. We need to like the, <laughs> I want to see this weird kid. Demystifying craft to become a brass tacks, nut and bolt engineering technique. Uh, it should also be noted his father was a reporter and author who was the bureau chief for Life magazine. Uh, wow. Jack Fincher. Jack Fincher will return to our story at some point in 2023 as a key mm. figure in the rise of David Fincher, because of course Jack Fincher is the credited screenwriter of Mank. Ultimate, ultimate father's gift. Love, I love my dad. Like yeah. that's what that is, and it's kind of amazing. And we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in episodes down the line. Uh, Toward, uh, in his teens, he moved to Ashland, Oregon, where he attended mm-hmm. Ashland High School, directed plays, design sets, and lighting while in school, and was a projectionist at a movie theater, worked as a PA at a local television news station, also worked as a busboy dishwasher and fry cook in mm-hmm. Oregon. Upon graduating from high school, he received advice from his father that essentially was go to work. David Fincher briefly scanned film school, did not like the idea of theory and all of that kind of stuff. He wanted to get down to it. So immediately he headed back to the Bay Area and began working at Lucas at ILM, George Lucas's um, industrial light magic <laughs> to those who, you know. Non-nerds out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For all yeah. you uh, all you uh, character all you all you Millses in the all, audience. All our listeners who could define themselves as cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well that would wedge us on site. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where David Fincher took the um took the job at took any job he can get. And the other day, I was watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and I had the great joy, and scre- and I screamed at Jen, who looked at me like, oh, that's very nerdy of you, that mm-hmm. I paused it when I saw under Matt Photographer, uh, six other credited dudes, David Fincher's name. And I was like, badass, dude. So I love, wa- I love watching credits and seeing mm-hmm. somebody who rose to something else later on deep in the credits. I watch him all the time. Super satisfying. Great, great feeling. He also is listed. You can find him as the, as an assistant cameraman in the return of the Jedi credits. Oh, wow. That's very, very cool. Like, like, (laughs) and I dig about him is that his, and this has been his entire thing. And this is a control freak mindset, mind you. Mm -hmm. Um, he completely and utterly believes that one needs to know everything on set. Mm. The, there is a story that his collaborators have recently said that the two, the, and I think they said it about James Cameron too. The two jobs that James, that they both like, they both respect the most on set is caterer and actor. Cause those are the two things they can't do. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. But that's kind of David Fincher's mindset is that and he's you know i've heard stories about him being so micromanaging and crazy that he will go through a gaffer's bag 
and reorganize it for them to be more efficient. Oh my god, that's a lot. Which that's is heavy. actually not particularly cool. I feel like some of that has to be like, there's like a compulsive element to that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah and, you know, and he doesn't direct necessarily. I think that mm -hmm. what's so interesting about it is I think he does direct to let this out. Mm -hmm. That this is a perfect job for someone who has these OCD control freak compulsive yeah. issues. Yeah, and it's well, and it's like a it's a great yeah, it's a great way of venting his like <laughs> compulsive venting this particular spleen, so to speak. Like, because it's like yeah, you if he I feel like probably directing movies like this mitigates him becoming controlling in other aspects of his life, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, and I, from what I understand is that in private and at dinner or at a Laker game or at the beach going surfing Ooh, or whatever. He's chilling with Jack Nicholson at a Lakers game? I saw him courtside one time, and, and that was, like, on TV, and it's like they cutting to, like, Denzel Washington and DiCaprio and stuff, and the, obviously to Don, the most exciting person that I saw courtside was David Fincher. He's like, ah, the Finch, <laughs> oh, man! God. But he's, um... You know, I've seen him in person, chat, talk once, and uh, he's a wickedly funny guy. And mm. but it's mean, kind of. <laughs> There's like he's got a nasty, like. Um, like you have to expect that a little bit watching this. Yeah, yeah, and you expect it with all of his movies because all of his movies actually have very funny moments in them, within their grimness. But he, um, he said the he was getting interviewed by Elvis Mitchell, the um, esteemed critic just made this great documentary um, on Netflix about black cinema in the seventies that I highly recommend. Um, but he's interviewing him and um, Elvis Mitchell goes, well, I was talking to Denzel the other mm. day and David Fincher goes, Oh, you dropped something. And like, cause he name dropped. Him. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he got him off to say that. <laughs> And that's like the side of that's like this, this guy's super fucking quick and funny. Like he's a cheeky, he's a yeah. cheeky man. It does, okay, so that does make me hope that one day, in the same way that P.T. Anderson directed an Adam Sandler mm -hmm. film, maybe we get like a David Fincher. I want to see what a comedy from him would look like. I'd be very curious. And the, actually, the, you know, bring up P.T. Anderson, who wished cancer upon David Fincher in the nineties as well which we could maybe talk a little bit deeper on that in the fight club episode because it's all based on fight club um, but the difference is that pt anderson is an extraordinary humanist yeah and just like yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> a little warmer just a little yeah, bit just, just a hair. little and that's what's that is what separates quite a bit about them yeah. but so in 1984 david fincher left ilm to direct a television commercial for the American Cancer Society, his first directing gig. And Patrick and I took a look at it. It's on YouTube. It's you feel very good about looking up fetus smoking in, yeah. in, your, in your YouTube searches. It's like, you know, I'm definitely not on a weird, like, like insane list now. But it's a very simple, like 20 second spot where mm -hmm. David Fincher slowly pans the camera over of a fetus that kind of looks like the star child in um, 2001, mm -hmm. but it's smoking a cigarette and it's about secondhand smoke and it does the trick. I yeah. imagine in 1984, if you saw this and you were a smoker who was considering having a child, you probably thought twice 
Hopefully, yeah. hopefully you did. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope he didn't watch that and go, hey, that's a cool baby. But what I love about it is that it's, you know, no pun intended, from birth, David Fincher is all there. It's a complete thing in 15 seconds. The elegance of the camera pan across the baby, the mm-hmm. the level of technical skill, the cheeky, nasty sense of humor, but also yeah. deathly grim nature of it. The complete style that's mm-hmm. there. It's all there in this commercial. And it quickly, like, this is what you want as a fucking director, I hate to tell you. Yeah. Like, you can make all of the fun comedy spots that you want to make, uh, yeah, but, if, but if you're not making moves to show off your your shit, they're gonna guess who's getting guess who's getting noticed. The comment the the actors. <laughs> so yeah, you want 100%. you want you want them to get noticed, but you gotta throw your stuff in there too because they will look. They are looking for this. They are looking for bold swings like this and this is a bold ass swing from a yeah. guy so in 1984 we mentioned he's born in 62 you do the math mm-hmm. how old? he's 22 years old mm-hmm. and quickly brought to the attention produces la and he's given the opportunity to direct a rick springfield rick's of ricky and the flash document 85 documentary the beat of the live drum Ooh. so from this point on he's directing like nonstop commercials and music videos. And he's slowly but surely like, so he's like, if you look at it in his, in his musical videography, and I was thinking about it too. It's like, I think like the better the song, the better chance you have at doing a good music video. Yeah, that'll do it. You need like some D you need a good, you need some good, something to build on. Yeah. Like, like, you know, you listen to like Vogue, and you're like, mm-hmm. I think there's something here. I think I could make something out of this. Like, yeah. It, it... And I think like, and you know, Adam Naiman in his book Mind Games, which we'll be reviewing, referencing quite a bit, like talks about like the inspiration that can be found here. So like the Paul Abdul songs that he kind of really like shot up the chart with. Um, just the way you love me, straight up, forever your girl. Wow. Like, basically, he quotes a Chris Ryan article from The Ringer where he's like, I have no idea if David Fincher thinks Paul Abdul is a good singer. He definitely thinks she's a good dancer. And it's just like that one little element, like, okay, I can visually, like, capture this movement. And, like, watching the Vogue music video, and even, like, the weird shit with Steven Tyler arriving on the ground. Oh, The Jenny's Got a Gun video. If you understand movement and you understand like what visually pops within that. And so, you know, and throughout the eighties, he works with Rick Springfield a bunch, works with a group called the motels, works with Eddie money, mm-hmm. uh, lover boy. I, I actually watched that music video too. And it's <laughs> interesting. Even watching like the lover boy, I forget what the name of that song, but notorious, even lo- and notorious or love will rise again. He did a couple. It's notorious. I watched notorious mm-hmm. and, Look, big. I like Lover Boy as much as the next guy. Yeah, it's not their it's not their best song, but what he does, like just like the lighting and the mood setting yeah. in that, is like impressive. It is like you were a hundred percent right that this guy was like just totally cooked. 
immediately yeah. when he came out of the cinematic womb or whatever we're considering calling it. It's he, yeah, it's it's crazy. It is like because it's because it, it, it's like everyone's like walking to like a concert in that music video, but it's everything's like blue, like the toad. Like he has such a great color palette. That's what I like about like he uh-huh. like yeah he's just a and visual... we'll talk about his he will talk about his gradual elimination of that. Yeah, as we go too, because he hates he... hates the color red and the color pink. And Ooh. you'll notice in his at least in his cinematic output outside of the blood, those are rarely dimmed down. And his favorites are greens and yellows. Yeah. And, you know, I think seven is actually like as desaturated as seven is seven is more co- still more colorful than, say, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Gone Girl, you know, later on. Yeah, but like it feels like, yeah. Yeah, but it feels like, and this gets down to some of the ways Darius Kanji and Fincher shot it, and the fact that Seven is on film and his later work is on digital, which mm. digital's color spectrum is a little different than the color spectrum you can get on film, and the way you light digital is a little different than the way you light film, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Gotcha, gotcha, we'll gotcha. talk about that and the transition to digital probably around the Zodiac episode. <laughs> so, so there you go. <laughs> um, so he, but he works with a lot of like Loverboy, Rick Springfield, um, Eddie Money. These these artists that, but he's not doing like their A songs. Like he's not doing Jesse Girl. He's not doing Working for the Weekend. But right. he's still like making a name until he gets hired in '88 for Englishman in New York. A lesser mm. song, but still a ama- uh, still by Sting, and Sting yeah. is a by in 1988, you know, peak of his powers, you know, huge top star, yeah. top star, yeah, and you know that gets him Steve Winwood. You know he's not doing um, what's what's uh, what's Steve Winwood's like? Higher uh, love, know. higher love. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes, Bring <laughs> thank me you. The... Where was yeah? yeah come no on. Worries. Where was I on that one? I need to know. Come on, come on, Ow. Steve Winwood. <laughs> How dare you? You don't know. Steve you see that sunny, that sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> um, where they go to the gym, that episode where they go to the gym, and Dennis switches the music from like some pop song to Steve Winwood. And he's like, This is Steve Winwood. This is good. <laughs> it's like, Why on earth is Dennis's favorite act Steve Winwood? Who knows? Um, but I would say the Paul Abdul videos because this Paul Abdul album was huge. I remember the CD mm-hmm. at my like aunt's house <laughs> you know yeah. growing up and these were all the big songs from paul mm. like you know and like and it's almost like in a weird way like like i said like a test drive for pop mm-hmm. superstars because he's gonna go by 89 he's doing express yourself with madonna he's doing mm. end of innocence with don henley he's doing jane has got a gun with aerosmith like right. he's working with know, the best of the best the best of the best. You know, George Michael's on the horizon. Michael Jackson's on the horizon. The fucking yeah. Rolling Stones are on the horizon. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, but like, it's probably his like quadrilogy with Madonna. Mm-hmm. Express yourself, oh father. Or is it true? Uh, Vogue and Bad Girl. Mm-hmm. And that kind of puts him on the map. She talks about like their like intense level of collaboration. There's even a rumor that they were together. Ooh! Which, wow. Watch out, Guy Pierce. Yeah, watch, yeah, watch <laughs> out. Anyway, watch out like fucking Jose Canseco or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Jose Canseco. 
Uh, was like Seiko Warren Beatty? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, and but um so Patrick and I took a look at like we watched right, that the guy, Jan- guy Richie, my bad. Richie, Sorry. yeah. Ugh, ugh. Uh, you know, Madonna had a lot of boyfriends. <laughs> Yo, Sean Penn was her husband. Oh spell. yeah. Mm, and actually yeah. this is the era of if you want to get into Madonna, these were kind of her divorce era songs. Oh, interesting. Penn. But anyway, Sean Penn's in the game too. We'll talk about him soon. Um <laughs> we watched Vogue and we watched Janie's Got a Gun. And what was phenomenal about these music videos was like Janie's Got a Gun. It was like a grim murder story. Yeah, I, lo- I love music videos. You really like they tr- as try as hard as they try to tell a story. It's all just images. So it's like just like vibes and stuff like that. Like I God only knows what was actually going on in the video. Yeah. But what I do remember is I loved the Jenny's Got a Gun video in 1989. It's like, it's like a seven, eight year old. <laughs> I saw it. I was like enthralled. I was like, what is happening here? This is There's really something. Yeah, I was like, this is like so stylish and cool. And I remember that shot of her in the nightshirt running down the street, the tracking shot behind her that's in slow motion with like the police lights around her. And the second I saw that this morning, I was like, I remember that so distinctly from being a kid. And like, and I remember Steven Tyler like writhing around on the ground doing push-ups or whatever. I'm like, what? <laughs> Very odd. <laughs> but it fits the fits the tone of the music video. For sure. It does. And it also just like over and over again underlines the fact that Aerosmith wanted to be the Rolling Stones so badly, and they are such the second-rate Rolling Stones. And I see this is a guy who likes a lot of Aerosmith songs. Yeah, no, I've <laughs> seen Aerosmith in concert, and I will be the first to admit they are kind of like a weaker... They're they're like the Shasta to, 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 <laughs> Royce, to like... Royce's Royce Coca-Cola. Yeah, yeah they're, the, they're definitely like, yeah, they're the Fago. And hey, you know what? Fago's sometimes fun, too. No worries. So, yeah, soda, soda, baby. But, you know... Yeah, it's all soda. It's all soda, but it's it is funny. Uh, Janie's got a gun video is great on YouTube. What's really great though, and I was mm-hmm. not a big Madonna fan as a kid. Mm-hmm. Never really have been. I'm not. I'm a rock. I'm a rock and roll guy. I'm not really a pop guy. But yeah. I I appreciate it now as an older, you know, someone who just respects hard work and good art. Yeah. Um, this Vogue video is excellent. It doesn't really feel like it's aged, and I feel like it's still incredibly influential on how yeah, they it, do any of this stuff. It is like funny that like I feel like so many music videos, even good ones, um, I feel like music videos age like milk for the most part. Like it's like a lot of them, they're like, very, very like cultural, like of the moment marker of the moment because they're so immediate. Yeah, and, and I think that Fincher and Madonna. We're trying for something bigger here. I mean, it certainly helps that this video was probably the most expensive video of 1990. Yeah, that'll do it. But what I love about it is the fact that, like, and I think all the good music videos do this. If you think about, like, you know, Mark Romanek's um, closer music video from Nine Inch Nails or um, Mark Pellington's Jeremy video from uh, Pearl Jam. Mm hmm just to name a couple ones that I consider pretty good videos. Like there's like a heightening aspect 
there's always like, oh, that's a new element. <laughs> and then this one, it's like, start off with the guys dance and start off with the background singers, start off with Madonna dress one way. All of a sudden, she's topless. All of a sudden, they're in drag. All of a sudden, like, all this stuff's happening. Like, wow. Like, yeah, there's you know, a lot going on. He just keeps adding neat stuff like, to this video. <laughs> like, it maintains, like, being visually interesting mm-hmm. for a very long time, which is oh, very cool. Sure. And. I think he gets that. And I think like he brings that to his movies, like this consistent level of like picking your spots, but making it visually interesting, doing all these like groovy things. Like, I think you have to think that way as a filmmaker. I think the best filmmakers think that way. And one thing I think that makes him actually, and I'm just, oh, this is going to be ready for a hot, hot take. Ooh, okay. This is what makes him superior to the Scots. In my opinion, his choices are within story. He looks for the best, cool, stylish way to accentuate the story, not just to be cool and stylish. I, dude, I, I had, I was gonna have a similar point where it is like with the Scots, or at least with um, with Tony Scott, Ridley Scott. Uh, there's a bunch of, I don't know. We can go into that another, but like with Tony, I was just thinking. I think it's just because I saw. A movie we'll, we're going to be covering next week before uh, this uh, movie we're talking about right now. And David, yeah, David knows when to, like, slow down. I think, like, with Tony, he, they both have this, like, very, um, they know what an audience wants. They're, they have a very keen sense of, like, what will be interesting on screen and what will, like, you know, connect with with what the with the people that are viewing it. But I think there's like a level of restraint that David Fincher has that perhaps Tony Scott does not have. Here's a question, and this mm-hmm. could be something we don't have to answer in this moment because we got a lot of movies to watch that could help us answer it. Do you think David Fincher understands story better than the Scott brothers? I think you could be I could be wrong, but I think like and maybe it's not look, maybe I answered too quickly. I and and I could and, I would say yes to. I mean, yeah, I would say yes to I mean and I and it's not like there are movies where it feels like Ridley Scott is in tune with what he's writing about, or Tony Scott is in tune with what he's like, you know, directing or whatever. But like, uh, I think that on a whole, like, uh, how about this? I think David Fincher's control freak perfectionist side Mm -hmm. would not allow him only in like very small circumstances that we will, that are super noticeable because of it. Mm -hmm. He does not go into production without his script being in game shape mm. and I, that tony and in particular ridley are a little more open-minded on going into production without all of the script answers solved yes i think yeah they're more gung-ho than yeah. david david is like a gotta be prepared he's you know yeah he, going to hike with david he's bringing a granola bar and that's <laughs> and, but i mean there are issues here and you know we'll talk about kind of our thoughts on the closing moments of seven i mentioned before we jumped on my real issues with the end of the game mm-hmm. i think that um mank could be discussed with some scriptural issues that we'll get there but i think he may have had blinders 
a bit more than mm-hmm. he usually does with the screenwriter yeah. on that movie, which is understandable. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not perfect, but I do think he gets he knows what he wants to accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't like we'll find it on the day. It isn't like, oh, that would, you know, I think. Um... But no I also cla- think that there's a reason why Ridley works a hell of a lot more than David Fincher does, too. Because yes, of that. yeah. Well, like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like Ridley or not Ridley. David would never put himself in a gladiator situation. It feels mm-hmm. like he like he wants the story already set up. He needs time to, like, prepare He's not willing. He's not gonna like. He's not the guy that the the um the studio goes to when it's like ah shit. You know, uh, Sean Levy just like dropped out of the Garfield reboot. We really need it. We yeah, really and need there, someone to. Come and there to are, off the top of my head, no stories that I can think of in which an actor claims they have rewritten their dialogue to fit the character like Russell Crowe claims on Gladiator. Man, yeah, that is that, like, yeah, that is it, not that's no, 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 yeah, <laughs> not happening. This is not a it takes a village director, this is a it takes a dictator director, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, and it takes think, an iron hand, yeah, yeah, and you know, for better or worse, I think with the thing with Fincher is the only people you ever hear who have had fairly negative things to say about him are producers and actors. Yeah. And we'll get into why with the actors. I think he has a kindred spirit in beautiful dope, Brad Pitt, who yeah. can beautifully hit his marks without complaint. He's so <laughs> he's so beautiful and dopey in this movie. He's Absolutely. So, just uh see that's another reason why Seven works so well. There's he resists the urge to make Brad Pitt like a smarter character. He is and I think because Brad Pitt is and he understands it in all three of their collaborations. He's from a different world. Yeah. He's he's too beautiful to, like, kind of be a part of our universe. Mm-hmm. So he has to be a beautiful dope who pays. He yeah. has to be a figment of another man's imagination, of their ideal of perfection. Or he has to be a man who ages backwards <laughs> and can't even live in this universe appropriately. <laughs> like, yeah, he can't even, like, yeah. That's the only way you can temper a Pitt's, like, star power. We'll talk about on Benjamin Button. When he becomes Brad Pitt, David Fincher shoots the shit out of him. That he arrives in the middle of his life as Brad Pitt, and it's an extraordinarily jaw-dropping movie star entrance that he I gives do, him i, I do remember like that like moment in the movie because it's uh, that's like a movie i saw that i think i saw it in theaters like way back when mm-hmm. and that is like the big that halfway point where you kind of like really see him as like a as as brad pitt it is like a something that sticks in my mind even yeah. more so than the cgi moments for and sure it's so it's another reason why he's so good. He gets it. I remember when Stoyoff, when Joker came out, and I was talking yeah. to a friend about the scene where Joker dances on the steps. Oh, yeah. And I was like, do you think, like, that was just something that they discovered in the editing room? And what we kind of came up with is, like, no. Todd Phillips, like, circled it on the calendar because he's a good – say what you will about him. He's a good yeah. director. And he understands 
he understood we need this moment to really hammer it home. This is the poster moment. This is the trailer moment. This is going to draw. This is going to put seats and asses. Fincher, when Brad Pitt rides his motorcycle in to Curious Case of Benjamin Button, as Brad Pitt, after spending a fucking hour and a half with him under either CGI and heavy makeup. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's what we've been waiting for. Yeah. Oh, man. It matters. In the same way that he does it in this movie, too. He, every single moment that he can push it, present Morgan Freeman, present Brad Pitt, present Gwyneth Paltrow, present the villain, he does so. All of the yeah. horrific moments, all of the death scenes, all of the body reveals are to build on that. In Janie's Got a Gun, he holds the shot where he brings the camera up through the bullet wound in the guy's stomach up through all the way up to the ceiling at the end of the video. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> wow. It's like, I've never, yeah, I never in my life would I, would I have thought I would have gotten an O moment from a fucking Aerosmith music yeah. video. It's yeah, and they actually have a lot of good music videos too. They understood. Also, that's the other thing. He hooked up with people like Madonna, hooked up with people like Aerosmith, hooked up with people like Billy Idol and Paul Abdul, who understood the video medium mm, and what sure. it could do. Great collaborators. David Fincher understands a good collaborator. If you watch the credits to his movies, you will see a lot of people returning. And with Seven in particular, which is really, really groovy. Mm. Camera operator is Jeff Cronin with camera ga gaffer is Claudio Miranda. Wow. Oh, my God. Who, of course, you know, we'll talk about them later. Jeff Cronin with shot many a David Fincher movie. Claudio Miranda was DP on um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button and is won know, the Oscar was, for Life of Pi and shot Top Gun Maverick earlier this year. Oh, that is dude. It is so crazy watching this movie and seeing all the re returning like it's so fun to see which actors return to these movies and which, like, DPs and, like, even, like, the, you know, the, the cinematographer, the serious Kanji, you know, mm. our Bardo boy. Like, yeah. And who did have a falling out with Fincher on Panic Room. But, oh, um, no. Panic Room, and, we'll, again, boy, I keep saying this. We'll talk about it when we get to Panic Room. Panic Room, David Fincher even declares the demarcation line of taking things a little too far Ooh. in his in his meticulous behaviors and he realized he had to take a step back and there was a break panic room to zodiac was a pretty extended time period where on a sabbatical to, to, yeah to develop it so um basically you know to get to cut to the chase he's the hottest music video director around he started propaganda yeah. films he's got his hands in everything he's the biggest commercial director so obviously knock 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 hollywood producers are going to come a call in he mm -hmm. gets hired in 1990 for Alien 3. Alien 3 comes out in 1992. If you want to listen to an hour and a half on Alien 3, go back to the Lance Henriksen episode. You can learn about all the trials and tribulations. You know, long story short, Alien 3 was not a happy experience for him. He has disowned it. He does not talk about it to this day. He's the, oh. only, he's the only director in the Alien Quadrilogy box set who did not participate in the Blu-rays, not a happy experience. So he's looking, if he's going to direct a Hollywood movie again, it has to be under 
his control completely. Go back in time to 1986. Screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker moves from Pennsylvania to New York City and feels a bit of culture shock from Ooh. moving from the burbs of Pennsylvania to moving to 1980s <laughs> New York City. While working at a Tower Records, he famously Ooh. writes seven at the counter through his depression of and uh, through the ugliness of how shitty he found New York City. Damn, that is like that's that is interesting that is so i did not realize how uh in some ways uh autobiographical perhaps absolutely yeah or at um, least like the vibe autobiography like just the mood he was feeling he definitely poured that into the script simultaneously silence of the lambs wins best picture at the academy awards starting a trend that grim serial killer investigatory films are hot <laughs> crazy we in hollywood so they're looking script gets optioned for the minimum fee and um he gets enough money to quit his job relocate to los angeles and work on seven the it gets it is um almost from the start the initial producers are like you have to change the ending we will talk about the ending in a little bit here (laughs) um uh Need to be mainstream. There's all sorts of ideas thrown around with it, but he felt it was going to ruin the script. They demanded all sorts of drafts. Finally, it ends up in the hands of producer Arnold Coppelson, who brought the film to New Line Cinema, who at this time was still considered the house that Freddy built. Um, Due to the fact that their first major success was Nightmare on Elm Street. That is like, yeah, that... You know, we yeah, this is definitely pre Lord of the Rings. Yeah. The original director who was hired to direct it was a man by the name of Jeremiah S. Chechnik, who's probably most famous for a very similar movie, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> yeah, equally horrifying. Equally horrifying movie. With the, pra- with the depravities of man on site in that film. He ended up leaving the project, and the next directors they approached were Phil Genot, uh, oh, who really? um, turned it down. You too. Yep. U2's drug guy, who turned it down because he found the story too bleak. And of course, Guillermo del Toro was approached for the script. He, Man. I don't know what, if uh, you know, who knows. I, it, I, it, I think, I think I would prefer this the Fincher Seven, but it would be fun to step into that alternate reality and see. I the guess D- that would be del a spoiler. Alert. This all turned out okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, maybe there'd be a wizard involved. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, at the time, David Fincher had disowned Alien Three and declared in an interview he'd rather die of colon cancer than make another movie. In a very David Fincher <laughs> level hyperbole. Oh uh, man, coming from the guy to the fetus smoking commercial too. Yeah, shocking that he would say something like that. Um, <laughs> they brought him the script anyway. He was uninterested in the police procedural aspects, but found himself drawn to the gradual reveal of John Doe's plans, getting back to our initial thesis at the beginning of this episode, that perhaps David Fincher identifies with John Doe more so than Mills or Somerset. Oh, man. I, I, I. <laughs> he, ex- he expressed interest. He... Uh, he wanted to match his own creative sensibilities, particularly its meditation on evil and how evil gets on you and you can't get it off. And he loved 
the uncompromising ending. Yeah. He expressed interest, and so what the deal was is that there had been a ton of rewrites that he got sent the original script with the mm-hmm. original ending that Andrew Kevin Walker wrote. New Lions have sent it by accident. They had changed the ending to a happier ending, and they're like, hey, no, let's send you the actual version of this script. Mm-hmm. And he said, no way. I'm not doing it unless the original Blake ending is there. Very good. Met with, met with the president of production, who also preferred the original ending, and they agreed to start filming that version. And they had to do it in rapid fire fashion because they said that if any other of the executives heard about their plan to make a movie like this, that they would be stopped. They had so a damn caper on their hands. Yeah. They'll start in six weeks and Coppelson and the other studio executives were determined to lighten the tone and mood. Fincher was resistant to any change, unwilling to compromise any level of creative control or vision. Our man, (laughs) way to go, Flair. Hell yeah, Pim. (laughs) Uh, Michael DeLuca, the producer who was president, remained supportive of Fincher and the original ending. And further promised to get prominent actors. Um, in particular, Brad Pitt said he also refused to change the ending. Nice. Thought it was perfect. And this was um, apparently the end of Legends of the Fall was changed, which pissed Brad Pitt off. And oh, interesting. He and Brad Pitt at this time, Brad Pitt plays Detective David Mills, one of the lead roles in this film. He mm-hmm. was the pretty boy of the era. You can ask Jen what 13-year-old girls felt at that time. And they all had a huge, she just gave me a thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she had a Legends of the Fall poster up in her room. This was the hunk of hunks. We've talked about it. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you watch uh, Thelma and Louise. It's like, Jesus, it's the perfect body. Yeah. He, he wanted to change it up. He wanted to do something darker. He wanted to do something that didn't rely on his looks. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so we should probably let everyone know what this movie is about before we go further into this thing. Seven is the story of William Somerset on seven days away from his retirement from the police force in an unnamed nonstop grim rainy city that um is the worst place in the world it sucks it's the greasiest place in the world it it is so sad it's it's like yeah it's like gotham in a world where batman didn't exist and uh, the only way to survive in this city is by pure nihilism and cynicism and acceptance of how awful everything and everyone is he is seven days from retirement. He's not quite sure what he's going to do. He thinks he's going to move to the country. There was actually apparently an original start to this movie where he was like touring a country house. Oh. Um, we are immediately thrown in heat to a murder scene in which he meets his replacement in the police department, young, brash, naive detective David Mills, played by Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt has just moved um, to terrible city from idyllic farm country with his wife tracy played by the angelic gwyneth paltrow whose job in this film is to be the notion of purity 
Yeah. Cleanliness and an angel thrown into hell. Yeah. Well, and also, like, in credit to her, like, she she gets increasingly harried. She is. Yeah, because, it is. Because like, it's awful. It is truly yeah. awful. And she it lives is. with she lives with a man child who loves his dogs the most. God, yeah. It is like Brad Pitt is just a total rube in this movie, which yeah, I kind of love. It's it's important to note that it's important yeah. to his character. It's not a char- It's not a flaw in the script or acting yes! that these choices are here because it all. This is all a puzzle, leading up to the conclusion to this movie. That, as we mentioned before, everyone wanted to either change or remain. There was no middle ground on where they were going to go with this ending. No. So we meet them almost immediately on a crime scene in which a large man mm-hmm. has is with his head in a plate of spaghetti uh, is dead. Yeah. It seems at first that this is just a poor soul who like dropped dead of a heart attack because they you know ate themselves, you know. To death, yeah. To death. Um then they find that his hands and legs have been bound. They find bruises against his temple that reveal that resemble the butt of like a the 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 muzzle of a gun. Mm-hmm. There are more clues, and what we find is that he was force fed to death. And they discover a sign on the wall that says gluttony. Then a slimy attorney ends ends up um, having to. Oh boy. Well, we don't need to describe all of these. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's uh, it sticks. It's, it's yeah. It's, it's like yeah. But in written in blood on the floor is greed, and what the brilliant Somerset, well-read brilliant Somerset discovers is that this seems to be a serial killer on the loose who is creating murder scenes based upon the seven deadly sins. Yeah, and as such, we are on a ticking clock for our heroes to catch this mystery killer before all seven murders are committed. And that's basically, that, that sums up the uh, yeah. story there. That's, that's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the plot. Well, and it's interesting. It's like, um, as there are, there are like a lot of moving parts and, and, and whatnot. It's a very, it's very intricate on one level, but there is also kind of a nice simplicity to the plot too. Like, it's not like there's mm-hmm. a million storylines going on. If that makes sense. The movie, the movie doesn't feel cluttered. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very it's, it's, it's streamlined. It's a very streamlined yeah, movie. Exactly. So, uh, Brad Pitt was the first person cast. Um, mm-hmm. They apparently went to Sylvester Stallone and Denzel Washington for the part prior what? to Pitt. Thankful, thankfully, thankfully, in particular, Stallone turned it down because Stallone definitely would have changed the ending. Uh, what if, oh, yeah. uh, what if you know, uh, David Mills is you know kills everybody? He's like wins. <laughs> yeah, what if everyone uh, kind of picks him up like the end of a high school football game yeah, after he like, kills the man, guy? Like law enforcement's done it again. Uh, and uh, what if we changed his name to Cobra? Anyway. Yeah, what if, yeah, what if this was a sequel to Cobra? <laughs> Cobra Two. So, um. In terms of the Somerset character, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker apparently originally envisioned William Hurt in the role, which would interesting. be interesting. Yeah. But the studio thought um, kind of a buddy movie in the vein of Lethal Weapon might be an mm. interesting thought. But they were also a little concerned that it might be derivative. Um, they went to Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, and Al Pacino for the role. All interesting. turned it down. But they ended up with the great Morgan Freeman in the role. 
and the script was modified further to um, kind of match the two guys' acting styles. Mills was made more verbose. Somerset's dialogue turned down, maybe a little more precise. Um, yeah. For the role of Tracy, the wife of D- Detective David Mills, uh, Robin Wright auditioned for it, um, and hmm. Christina Applegate turned it down before Interesting. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was cast in the role. And uh, she was recommended for it by Brad Pitt because apparently she had auditioned for Legends of the Fall and he remembered her audition and liked it. And, um, of course, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow ended up dating after this movie. Um, I guess that Fincher also preferred Gwyneth Paltrow but was told that her people were actively dissuading her from taking the role. Oh my god! Because it was too dark, he ended up auditioning a ton more people, hundred more people at least, before Brad Pitt contacted her directly and said, "You should come on board for this thing." That'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, and and it shows Brad Pitt was really really passionate about this movie. And I get there's a very funny quote that um, Brad Pitt says, "I just wanted to escape the cheese," and I came to find out David Fincher had a lactose intolerance as well. So I was very happy about that. <laughs> it is, yeah. Seven is a decidedly cheeseless world. Mm-hmm. And Pitt described David Mills as a well-intentioned idiot who speaks before he really knows what he's talking about. That is a hundred. He understood yeah. the yeah. He understood the character. And it, it's the moment where like you realize that this dude doesn't know what Merchant of Venice is, and that Morgan Freeman like <sighs> has to get him a million like uh, clip notes. <laughs> Books. And, like, it's he, so and, he's, good. and he's deeply insecure about that. Yeah. Um. For the role, so as the film progresses, we discover this: the killer is a man named John Doe. Mm. And they Fincher and Walker, do, based on his resemblance to a composite sketch of the Zodiac killer went to Ned Beatty, the great Ned Beatty. So different! Who declined and described the script as the most evil thing he had ever read. He was in Deliverance, mind you. He was was the baddie in Network, so he's like, he's not like, he's not like, it's not like he hasn't done, but like, that's fair. This is like, yeah, this movie is not a cakewalk by any stretch. Absolutely not. Um, Apparently they looked at Michael Stipe, lead singer of R.E.M., but his filming dates filming dates conflicted with the band's tour. But, boy, what an interesting world that would have been. Yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> our boy Val Kilmer declined the role. That would have been interesting, though. Yeah, he would have and made some choices. I guess Arlie Ermey auditioned for it, but David Fincher said the portrayal was completely unsympathetic without any depth. If you read what Arlie Ermey has said about David Fincher, there is no, there was no love lost between those two men. He found he was, he wanted cattle, not actors. Oh well, yeah. You know, I mean, to be hey, to be fair, he's perfectly cast. Like him perfectly is like the cast old... as he he ended up being cast as the kind of captain of the police force. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect, perfect kind yeah. of foil to to Morgan Freeman's uh, dead on the inside character. I'm not sure if Arlie understood his limitations as an actor and how there were roles, though, for his entire life that fit those limitations perfectly. Yeah. Drill instructors, military guys, police. Yeah. 
History Channel hosts, yeah. History Channel hosts. You name it. Um, But the actor that was preferred by Brad Pitt was Kevin Spacey. But the executives refused to pay his salary. Um, Apparently, they initially filmed scenes with an unknown actor playing Doe, but the actors, the filmmakers quickly decided that we needed a face Mm -hmm. to play John Doe. Brad Pitt helped negotiate Spacey's involvement. Spacey recalled, I got a call on a Friday night and on Monday morning I was planning to L.A. shooting on, t- on Tuesday. He f- shot for 12 days. Um, and Brad Pitt was just adamant that he would be right for the role. Uh, Brad was correct. <laughs> and yeah. sp- I guess it was Spacey's idea to omit his name from the film's marketing and opening end credits to ensure the surprise of the killer's identity, which... I remember reading the Rolling Stone review, like Peter Travers was like a great actor plays John Doe, but I won't tell you who it is. And I was like, oh, I got it. I'm dying to see this damn movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think, like, who is it? Is it going to be uh, Mel Brooks? Like, is it Eddie Murphy? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so they went into um, production. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, the basic thought process, they started principal photography December 12th, 1994 concluded March 10th, 1995. Mm. Um, apparently, assistant director Michael Allen Kahn recalled the commencement of filmmaking. I went up to Fincher and I said, look at this. Look, it's here. We're here. You did it. We're shooting a movie. Isn't this amazing? And he looked at me as though I was from outer space and said, no, it's awful. Now I have to get what's in my head out to all of you cretins. Man, <laughs> rock and roll, dude. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was the mindset. Like his anger and fury of Alien Three, combined with his compulsive issue, compulsive nature. Um, yeah, yeah. He it's is kind of like it's so funny. He is kind of like if. Uh, using the dumbest analogy ever, if James Cameron is uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, David Fincher is the gritty shadow, the hedgehog, the grim antihero to, to James mm-hmm. Cameron's traditional lead. He is like, he's like, because he has that same, he has that same, like, you know, I have these perfect ideas in my head, have to get them out. No one else knows how to do it but me, but he's willing to be a little more spicy about it. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, Brad Pitt was only available for 55 days mm-hmm. uh, because he had he was scheduled to go shoot 12 monkeys immediately after this. Oh, um, good year for him. And toward the start of the shoot, like on day one, day two, it began raining in Los Angeles. And since they did not have much time and to avoid any continuity issues, Fincher decided it's going to rain this entire movie. Oh, and my <laughs> Which is a brilliant, like, what a stroke of luck, because yeah. it really adds to the entire atmosphere of oh, it. Oh, you need it. It, like, yeah, it yeah. totally elevates, like, yeah, because it just, it gives you this sense of just, like... Dude, I felt wet watching this yeah. movie. I felt wet and dirty watching this Ugh, movie. It is, like, trash water. Trash yeah. water world. Yeah, it's brown water, baby. Oh <laughs> yeah, you, you're getting a disease from this water. Don't drink the water. So, um... Seven's aesthetic was influenced by films such as All That Jazz, Silence of the Lambs, and The French Connection, mm-hmm. as well as like the handheld shots. Apparently, where they thought of the show Cops. Um, Darius Kanji also took a look at the um, thriller Clute 
for some of the darker look and the Gordon Willis stylings of it. Uh, Studio was pissed off about how dark everything looked. Uh, Kanji suggested printing the footage brighter. David Fincher said, fuck you, no. Ah. (laughs) Um, And there are these prints that they made of it with this silver nitrite stock, if I'm not mistaken, that's what it was called, that has kind of a silver tint to them that were uh, made available for... um, you know, as show rails for conventions and stuff like that. A handful of them still exist and um, plays about once a year at the New Beverly here in Los Angeles. And hopefully it gets around to some other places too. Um, the, the other, some of the other interesting issues that occurred is that Brad Pitt insisted on performing his own stunts for the big chase sequence that highlights the, the middle of the film. And mm-hmm. he slipped on a rain soaked car crashed through the windshield and sustained injuries, including cut tendons and nerves in his left hand. Fincher claims he saw exposed bone, and he says it in kind of a <laughs> perverse, excited way. <laughs> like, ooh. <laughs> uh, he, he has like a, there's like a little stinker element. To there really Fincher. is. There really there, is. He, uh, yeah. Brad Pitt is a total fucking pro. Received mm-hmm. stitches, forearm cast, and returned to set. Yeah, well, I think it adds um, to, like, the... Because, like, I feel like that character gets, like, worn down throughout the yeah. film. And that, like, really adds to that. That It's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, bit of, like, you know, uh, costuming, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. And he... um, But, you know, movies do not shoot in continuity. So there are many scenes in the movie you can notice Brad has got his hand in his coat or under a table that they shot later on where he had to hide the cast. Um, another interesting like little tidbit, there's a scene toward the end of the movie where they um, are shaving their chests to put on the oh. wire. Um, and Brad was so concerned about how much attention got put on him about taking off his shirt in movies. That's why he's wearing like Morgan Freeman is shirtless, but Brad Pitt is not in that scene and he's so self-conscious about it and he's like and apparently later on he said yeah there's probably like realistically i probably should have had my shirt off but i was so (laughs) like like, concerned with this this uh this whole thing yeah he is like yeah he, he he is uh he's just there is something about like he's so his hunkiness. It feels like a he felt like it was a like a burden he had to carry. I imagine. And he does, to, and he does to this day because I guess the um, even the line in Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Bruce Lee says, "You're awfully good looking for a stuntman," mm-hmm. was a point of contention, and the only reason it's in the film was because in the initial script reading. Burt Reynolds, who was there, who was going to play um, George Spawn before Bruce he passed away and Bruce Dern took on the role. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce, Burt Reynolds, who knew his way around stuntmen, said the line to Brad Pitt. Wow. You're awfully pretty first. And Quentin took it and put it yeah, in the script. Y- y- and you can't gotta, leave that. You got it. You can't leave that. That's gold. You're just leaving yeah. out, baby. That's gold, baby. Yeah, you can't leave that strawberry in the table. You got to eat that bad boy. Totally, totally. So, um... <laughs> Cut to the post-production, and this involves the ending of the movie. So, here we go. These are spoilers. If you've not seen it, you've probably you heard, you may have heard about it, but watch the movie, please. If yeah. you're if you're a lucky soul that has lived in the dark about seven up until 2023, 
watch it yourself. Enjoy or don't enjoy what was to come. So Mills and Somerset have the crimes have rapidly gained speed. There is a they track down with the help of a shady FBI agent played by the great um Boone. What's his name? Oh, um, Mark Boone Jr. Mark Boone Jr. Um helps them track down through library checkouts John Doe's apartment. John also, Doe, oh go ahead. I just want to say really quickly, guy in the library. Uh, He's the bus the driver bus? in speed. Yeah. Yes, Hopper <laughs> and James. I saw him and I was like, yeah. yeah love it. <laughs> I love this guy. It was just very happy to see him. Uh, um, but they track him down, which leads to a chase sequence that is absolutely like gangbusters phenomenal. Should be taught riveting. in all film school. Riveting gang, yeah. riveting chase sequence that leads to across taxi cabs, in the rain, through halls, through people's apartments. Yeah. And it should be noted that earlier in the movie, because they don't know anyone in town, Mill's wife Tracy has confided in Somerset how much she fears the city and how she is pregnant and has not told Mills about this yet. So the second hotshot hothead Mills goes barreling after John Doe, Morgan Freeman, whose performance in the movie might be the performance of the movie, yeah. is he has opened up his heart to Tracy, and thus he has to protect crazed puppy dog David Mills. And Freeman plays it perfectly. He wants mm. to catch John Doe, but he does not want Mills to get hurt or killed in the process because of yeah, what he, he knows. Yeah, he's, he knows this town. He knows how easy he knows it is. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mills gets hurt. They don't catch John Doe. They find his apartment. John Doe calls them up in a very scary sequence that I love mm-hmm. how fast it is. When, when Spacey does the, um, I, I wouldn't want to ruin the surprise line reading. He does it super fast and immediately hangs up the phone. Most movies would hold on it, but I don't want to ruin the surprise. And like music cue, I don't want to ruin the surprise. Boom. Hangs up the phone, and you're just like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, scary, scary, scary. Yeah, scary. Freak. yeah totally. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Yeah, really sets up the rest of the film in a yeah, nice, scary does. way. Yeah. So they, they, it, what it, lust and pride follow in very quick succession. <laughs> the sloth scene is scary as hell. Oh, I hate that. That is like, I remember like not liking that scene when I watched it and, and not liking it in a good way. Like it, yeah. it, it elicits the right reactions. And yeah. uh, John C. Oh. McGinley is the California, the head of the SWAT team, perfectly cast. Oh, so good. Yeah. He, I wish he had a little more screen time because he's Same such with a fun... uh, Richard Roundtree as the DA was yeah. also very fun. He has like a gold tooth. I love yeah. that. There's all sorts but, of great touches like that. Yeah. And, well, let's, yeah. So they're just barreling through these things. The murders all get worse, by the way. Yeah, oh, dude, it's Feel like... Look it at yourself. I don't feel like describing them. Yeah, uh, it's not funny. We'll this only, is like... We'll only describe the final two, because that's really what what this all lies down on. So, Watch this movie when uh, it's still bright outside after the movie's done, so you can go take a walk and, and, and remember there's that hope. there's like good... Yeah, there's good stuff in the world. Yeah. So <laughs> they're at wit's end. They're, they know there's only two murders left. They have to find John Doe. They mm. enter the police station. There's a 
extremely important line as they enter the police station. The receptionist at the police station, like, Mills, your wife called. Get an answering machine. Ooh. Meanwhile, outside we saw, as Mills and Somerset were entering the police station, another person got out of a taxi cab in this wonderful dolly shot down the street. I, the timing of it's just amazing. Yeah. Detective Mills! Detective Mills! <laughs> they turn around. It's fucking Kevin Spacey. His hands are covered in blood. He's turning himself in, but why? There's all sorts of deals to be made. The great Richard Schiff shows up as Kevin Spacey's slimy attorney. So good. I love that actor. He just... This is such a perfectly cast movie. Like, a testament to David Fincher's... um, you know, like he knows what role fits every role. What we'll talk about fits that. Every role. We'll talk about that as the movies progress. Every one of his movies, everyone is the right person for the yeah. roles that they play. Immaculate casting. Maybe not Mank. We'll talk about that. Yeah, that one makes. Yeah, she probably should have gotten an actor a little younger. But yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the deal is that John Doe will plead guilty to all crimes if mm. and only if. Mills and Somerset drive him out to the final two bodies. He, he uh, has completed. He has completed the project. He's going to show them where it is, but it has to be Mills and it has to be Somerset and it has to be at this certain time of day. Mills is like very classic Mills. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and Somerset's like, there's definitely a catch here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you, you buffoon, you lovable buffoon. And it's noted that the blood on Kevin's so it's revealed that Kevin Spacey's character cuts the um his fingertips off mm-hmm. to have no fingerprints. Uh, crazy detail crazy detail. Crazy yeah. detail. That that's like the thing is like you're dealing so oh god, what I'm gonna say, I need to stop saying what I'm about to say because I feel like I say this every other fucking episode, but like this is that that this character it this does feel this movie does feel like the condition, the the continuation of the Blood Meridian ethos. Mm-hmm. Like this is like world has fallen, everything's bad, and um, in the way that uh, Brad Pitt is akin to the kid, he's very much that like character that kind of comes into this fucked up world and gets th- immediately thrown into like the shittiest of shitholes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is like yeah, I think like part of why John Doe works is there is like a supernatural element to Kevin Spacey's character. Like it is like the, the level of commitment that character has is scary. And like, the only, he's the only other character you can think of is um, Anton Chigurh in no country for old men. Yes. In cinema, this level of, um, and the Coens get this too, this level of fatalistic. This is yeah. the only way things could go. Mm hmm. And it's beautiful when it comes together, even if it's disgusting and grim. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's and that's why like I thought of the like Blood Meridian also like it's just a totally dire work that is beautiful, that is poetry in its own way. Like yeah. it is like this like it's just like it, I don't know, it's just sad. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> so the basic thing is the final two sins are mm-hmm. envy and wrath. Mm. Envy, and so they agree. They drive him out there, and we get a dynamic 
change of scenery. All of a sudden, everything is bright. They're in the desert, and everything has changed. Yeah. It's, it's like almost hell. In a oh, way. it sucks. It is like, yeah. it is so, and it's so ominous. Like, it, yeah, it reminds me, yeah. And we should also note Howard Shore's score, really, which is brilliant the entire movie, really comes into play as we mm. head toward the close. We get an amazing dialogue sequence in the car on the way out where they try and like figure out John Doe's deal. But they try and figure out from both their angles. Somerset's is one of more grave curiosity, whereas Mills is like, you're a freak, yeah. Bullying. You're a lunatic freak. You're a yeah. t-shirt. You're a fucking t-shirt. You know? Yeah, he is like. Here's the thing about Mills that I kind of like. You get the sense that this was a guy who was probably like a bully in high school with him. Yeah, and he became a cop. Like a lot of guys become cops. He's probably like played football. He married the prom queen, and they didn't yeah. know what to do. He wasn't like 100... you know, not a smart enough guy to like go to college and like get a you know. Played varsity baseball or football. Yeah. Did wasn't the best player, but was pretty good. But wasn't but he's, like, good the enough captain to like of the team because he was a fun guy. Hundred you know? percent. Yeah. And yeah, and so he just and it's like the movie has completely set you up for this, and you don't uh, even know that it's happening because you're so caught up in the procedural. Oh no. it. Yeah. So, and Kevin Spacey is so fucking foreboding. You know, he's like, they will write books about what I've done and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it's all of this, like, it's, I love it. It feels like when you're writing a script like this, or even when you're thinking about it, it's like too on the mm-hmm. nose. Like, even in like, even like Top Gun Maverick, like every other line is, this could be your last mission, Maverick. Like, you can't go up this many times. Like, it, all of it is setting up, like, is Maverick going to die at the end of this movie? <laughs> like, and you know. Watch the movie for yourself. We'll talk about it at some point soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, everything is like, where's your wife? You have no idea how big this project that I'm doing is. And mm-hmm. how... If you had thought this was a simple thing, you have no idea. So they get out there, and everyone, Fincher, Kanji, all the performances, Howard Shore's music, yeah. location, John C. McGinley it. in that helicopter. Oh, you got an engine. Richard Francis Bruce, editor. Oh, um, so good. Like that is like something that he probably should have won the. He was nominated. Oscar. He was nominated, rightfully so. Yeah, exactly. Glad. Very good. Very rightful nomination. So they get out there. They're wondering what they do. They walk John Doe out. What time is it? Detective Somerset, what time is it? Oh, it's almost time. Then all of a sudden, with a long lens, this van starts coming down the road. It does. We got a van! We got a van! Oh, no. The Somerset gets in the car to go chase down the van. Then John Doe starts going, Oh, I admire you so much, Detective Mills. And he starts going into it. And Mills is so confused. And he's Brad Pitt's playing it so perfectly. And he's like, your life. And your pretty wife. <gasps> oh, no. And then Somerset gets to the car. It's just some dope-ass driver. Tells him to go no. for a run. I love this character. This is the guy Patrick or I would play. In this we are- the guy who's flying the plane who nearly gets run over in Con Air. 
by yes. the guy who just has to run away. Uh, yeah, that's us. I'm, I'm glad he got to get away, though. I'm like, yeah. you know what? He got to live another day, and he didn't get to see. Well, he's he's just a pawn. Yep, that's the issue. He is. Yeah, he's like I got. I had to deliver a package to Mills, Detective David Mills, and you're just like. Oh, no. The music is coming up, and you don't know what it's going to be if you haven't seen this movie. But you feel like this is so bad. <laughs> the vibes are not great. The vibes are so bad. <laughs> and then they cut to John Doe, and it's cutting back and forth between Morgan Freeman, like, open because they think it's a bomb in the box. Oh, yeah. And then Morgan Freeman goes, There's blood. And then they cut to Kevin Spacey in this close-up, this panning close-up. I envy you, Detective Mills. Uh... I guess that's my sin. And you're like, <gasps> he opens it. They don't show it. Everyone thinks there's a Mandela effect that everyone thinks they show it. They actually don't show it. It is, and I think it's a good choice, because, like, it's enough. You don't need to... You don't need to show what's in the box. And then they cut to John Doe. So I took a souvenir. Her pretty little head. Uh. He's killed Tracy. That was the other blood that was on his hands. Brad comes. And then cut to Morgan Freeman when he sees it. At the look on Freeman's face. He like goes as pale as a dead man. And, and he's like. And he stands up and he says the line that rings in my head. John Doe has the upper hand. Like, he's like, he's winning. He's winning. And uh, Morgan Freeman just takes off on this dead race. They shoot her from the helicopter because he knows he's, he's smart. He knows what the plan is. He has put the puzzle together. What John mm -hmm. does final and how terrible it is. Yeah. And he gets there. And that's when he reveals that Brad Pitt did not know that Gwyneth Paltrow was pregnant. Mm. and it gets worse and worse and worse morgan freeman looks to the sky like there is no god <laughs> yeah he's like uh this is bad life's not good right and, now it is just dire and then kevin spacey goes become wrath that's the final thing mills has to kill john doe to finish the puzzle john doe is the final murder victim brilliant terrible but brilliant yeah he and morgan it, freeman like if you kill him he wins and brad does it and it's and, like one of those yeah it's uh, it's it, it feels like he, he puts the audience in that place too where like it's like oh you make a choice what would you do yeah, what would you do? And you don't want to. Like, it's a terrible place to be. What a horrible, horrific place to be. Yeah. But well, and that's it's, all and that's it's on your mind thing. when you're, would, you, would I do it? Yeah, 100%. Well, and it's like, I think the thing that, you know, there's like, I bet a lot of people that are like, oh, he made the right choice. He should have. But it's like, but then he wins. That's the thing. Yeah, it's tough. It's so good. So speaking it's of a Mandela effect, I, like I said, I read the novelization before I saw the movie. I rented it on pay-per-view the second it was mm -hmm. available. That was the first time I saw it. Um... I swear in the novelization, there is a line where, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone else who's read it out there, Morgan Freeman goes, if you shoot him, he wins. And in the book, I believe it had Mills saying he wins and then shooting him. Oh, my God. 
And it's, I, and it's a, but that's like a death wish kind of thing. This is better by just having him do it. Yeah. That's like, so that's kind of like lame and on the nose. It's a little more exactly. movie-ish to have it like yeah. that. So I'm glad it doesn't exist. And I'm glad that every time I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> and yeah, well, so, it, it, well, I think like by framing it as like this choice, like it just, it makes it all the more, like it could have been avoided. It doesn't feel as inevitable, which makes yeah, it all the sadder. And, and also it makes exactly what John Doe said, that people to today would be reading like a Helter Skelter kind of book about this. Yeah. Ugh, this would exist. Yeah. If this was real, this would be. No, a hundred percent. This would be one of the most memorable and disgusting things to ever happen. Yeah. <laughs> he is like the most disgusting man. It, yeah. yeah. It would be. Yeah, people it's would a tribute have a to Kevin Spacey. His performance is brilliant. Yeah. And so controlled in the movie. And I know he's a, He's got his things in real life, but yeah, this is a brilliant performance. And all three of them are firing in completely all cylinders in this final sequence. So it ends with Mills being put away in a police car, dead eyed, done. Mm-hmm. It's over. Yeah. He's, and he's a broken man. Basically, Arlie Ermey's like, so what are you going to come back to work to Morgan Freeman? And Morgan Freeman's like, yeah, I guess I probably have to. Yeah, it was real, uh, real Christopher Walken and Zenzel Washington and Man on Fire vibes emanating from these two dudes. Yeah, and then Morgan Freeman <laughs> delivers this voiceover where he's like, Ernest Hemingway once said, the world is a beautiful, is a wonderful place and it's worth fighting for. And I agree with one of those things. Now, this is my one issue. I don't think that makes sense. Like, when his, what has Morgan Freeman learned at all in this movie? Nothing. Too, that it, that the world is worth fighting, even that the world is fighting for. He should move to his farm, get the fuck out of there. Yes, and like and live, they... and he has to live. He's the only one who has to like go on a day to day life with what he has seen. Mm-hmm. And the entire movie, he's this cynic and this you know pessimist about all of it. And then he gets one brief moment of hope, and then he sees the worst thing that he has ever seen in his life. And Freeman plays it so well, because it's like the modulations that he has to go through of hope versus no hope and that kind of thing. Why would he have any hope at the end of this? Everything was proven to him. So the deal was that this was very concerning, this ending. This ending is Mm -hmm. not pleasant. It yeah. remains after like, 40 times I've seen this movie, not pleasant. No. Yeah. Fincher's original goal was he wanted to cut to black immediately upon Mills shooting Doe and leaving the, intending to leave the audience stunned. But executives believe this would alienate the audience. Uh, Fincher instructed staff at a test screening to keep the lights off following the cut to black so the audience could take it in, and his instructions were not followed. Afterward, apparently one audience member walked by Fincher and said, the people who made that movie should be killed. Oh, my God. Uh, Fincher said that the invitation, though, said, would you like to see a new movie starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman? We <laughs> love these guys. Uh, I don't know what the fuck they thought they were going to see, but I'm telling you, the reaction of the people in there, they were bristling. They could not have been more offended. <laughs> like, yeah, the fucking... <laughs> I guess more the, legends of the ball. The studio executives wanted Mills and pursue Somerset to pursue Somerset in a kidnapped Tracy who would survive. 
Mm. Uh, Pitt recalled the studio said, you know, he would have been much more heroic if he didn't shoot John Doe, and it's too unsettling with the head in the box. We think that maybe it could be Mills' dog's head in the box. Oh, fuck off. Fuck off. Yeah, that um, just makes me angry. I, that's apparently, bad. there was a storyboarded sequence where um, Somerset killed Doe sparing Mills. That Freeman preferred. But um, Pitt really, really was pro. He thought it really... And I think he's, he, he was correct that to complete this story and not compromise at all, Mills has to kill Doe at the end of this yeah. movie. Even well, I if think that is the worst thing imaginable. It is like, yeah, it's super grim. It's so sad. It put me in a... I could not sleep after watching this movie. I like. I went mm. to bed at like three because I kept... I was just up like... It's so grim. It's just the saddest, grimmest thing. But uh, yeah, it's a cop-out if you don't do it in any other way. And I kind of like the idea... I'm intrigued by the idea of Somerset shooting... Yeah, uh, dope. But I kind of like Somerset it's, it's, is like it's better than them like chasing him down with a kidnapped Tracy. Certainly. Oh, a hundred percent, way better. But I think Somerset is kind of like I think what him being kind of a passive character is important. I think because well, I think he's been he, you know, to get back to this idea of God, he is God watching the creation turn on itself. And he can't, he's helpless to change anything. He's watching the terrors of what he's created, in a sense. Oh, God. This movie rocks. <laughs> that is, yeah. Man, it is like, it is so... Heavy, uh, man. It's heavy. It's a heavy movie. So I guess yeah. the compromise was between Fincher and Pitt and everyone else that they got to keep the head in the box, but they needed the concluding narration to offer some level of optimism in yes, my hey, opinion though on. it is the only false step in this entire movie that's fair it is funny like i think like in the moment watching it if i were to be completely honest it was kind of like a nice like it felt like a piece of like like wood to hold on to in the middle of this like stormy sea that is this movie yeah, but but in like retrospect the more you think about it the less it, it makes sense if you're like, willing yeah. to get over the the Nate, the the bad vibes that you have felt. It really is important to note that if to finish the job completely, as John Doe would say, you need like it is a compromise. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and it's like yeah, and it and it is like there's no way Somerset goes on after what it's just yeah because he's no. he's hollow. He yeah. was hollow at the beginning he's of the hollow movie. At the beginning, and this proves everything. This proves yeah. everything and then some about how shitty it is. Um, it also should be noted that the production designer is a man named Arthur Max, who has gone on to be the pr production designer for nearly all of Ridley Scott's movies. Good job, Arthur. And this is a this one should have been nominated the production design of this movie. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's like uh, yeah. Seven was budgeted at, at about thirty four million dollars, so actually fairly tidy, all things considered, uh, and for what they got out of it, Fincher is a known expert at stretching the budget to his needs mm. um oh it should also be noted the designer of all of the practical effects and makeup and gore effects was rob botin of the thing mm. whoa how cool is that that makes a lot of man because it's like it's a, it's just phenomenal so i'm glad that like yeah they got a pro absolutely and we should also note 
the title sequence, the famous title sequence that has been copied over and over again by every HBO show you love and, and plenty of movies, was designed by Kyle Cooper, a designer, and shot by the great cinematographer Harris Savitas. Um, maybe the Set most cinematographers working on yeah. this movie <laughs> maybe the most influential um oh and the it was edited by angus wall who went on to edit who has gone on to edit most of david fincher's films wow and uh it sets the tone completely it uses a remix of nine inch nails closer another thing that was stolen over and over again <laughs> yes we're looking at you the fan get out of here <laughs> the fan oh man yeah this this movie is, yeah, puts the fan to shame for sure. Absolutely. So um, the movie, though, was still like they got it done. Everyone was like, there's something here. Mm -hmm. But the test screenings were not good. It mm -hmm. was definitely there was a lot of nervous. They did not know how to market it um, because it was so dark. And but they knew that it would be a, if people did see it it would be a topic of discussion. It would be a water cooler movie by a wide margin. So in the early trailers and newspaper ads and so forth, they focused on the seven sins and presenting, presented it as an edgy prestige film rather than a jump sticker style horror movie. Um, wise. Why? Yes. And I think that's why, you know, I remember those trailers and, um, you know, I, you know, thought it looked amazing from those mm. trailers. And I was like, what is this? This looks so cool. And I was like a Brad, you know, we were all Brad Pitt fans. Oh, yeah. And, kind of thing, and Morgan Freeman fans. They were proven stars. Um, they were, there was a big nervousness, though, that um, Brad Pitt's core audience at this time, teenage girls, were not the audience for Seven. Perhaps true. Yeah. But... You know, and it was threatening appeal, but it opened September 22nd, 1995. It earned 14 million, making it number one at the box office ahead of the debut of Showgirls at 8.1 million. And in third place was naturally in its third week of release to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie <laughs> Newmar. Uh, uh, that's a nice little visit. Yeah, the little revisit there. It remained number one into its second weekend and in its third weekend. Oh my god. It remained number one until its fifth weekend at the box office. It grossed by the eighty seven million by the end of December and went into wide re release because they thought they could get it Academy Award nominations. The re release put it over a hundred million in the US, making it the ninth highest grossing movie in the United States of nineteen ninety five. It also performed well internationally. A total worldwide gross, $327.3 million. One of the Man. most successful movies of 1995. A complete surprise. Completely solidifying Brad Pitt as a megastar who could bring in anybody regardless of the content. Making Gwyneth Paltrow a star. Solidifying Kevin Spacey as the premier character actor of the moment. Wow. Putting Morgan Freeman into the mentor role that he was stuck in for the next 30 years. Yeah, let's know along came a spider without this movie, for sure. Nope, absolutely not. <laughs> and making David Fincher an A-lister as a director. Damn. The critics 
were up and down on this movie. Mm. They they found it. Some found it a little too just punishing and grueling and, you know, just downright mean. The, they were pretty unanimous about performances, in particular Morgan Freeman. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, there was this is a great noir film or this is a silly piece of pulp style over substance, you know, whether it was striking craftsmanship or just lurid bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, the violent content was generally negative received. They thought it was just too, um, a lot of critics just thought it was too much to take in. Uh, it received one nomination at the Academy Awards, like we said, for Best Editing. Uh, did Only one! Three awards at the MTV VMAs. Best Movie, Best Villain, and Most oh. Desirable Male. Uh, pre- prestigious award. I'm sure Brad Pitt loved getting that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is a Nickelodeon blimp. Or I guess MTV, they have a different thing. I don't know. Indeed. <laughs> um, it uh, is now regarded as one of the best thriller crime mystery movies ever made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um rightfully so yeah it's a banger uh it absolutely it it is a one it's almost one of a kind and it but it also influenced so 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 much i mean uh kiss the girls the bone collector along came a spider the pledge the saw series um the new the latest batman movie you name it the use of nine inch nails everywhere to underscore yes. dark sequ- uh, dark scenes to the point where Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are probably the most in-demand composers in movies today due to oh, yeah. no part David Fincher. The movie has a 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. The critical consensus is it is a brutal, relentlessly grimy shocker with top performances, slick gore effects, and a haunting finale. I agree. Um, this movie has lost none of its power to me. I love yeah. it as much as I did in 1995. It is like, um, there are so many imitators of this film. Yeah, you brought up like The Pledge, like Law Abiding Citizen comes to mind. It's like another movie that I feel like that takes a bit of like cues from this movie. Like, Absolutely. Uh, all these, yeah, Bone Collector, so on and so forth. But like, yeah, like this movie, I think like, yeah, it just, it's you, easy you to imitate difficult the big, to- yeah. Diff- yeah. Difficult to master, yeah. And it sets the tone because David Fincher, you know, he jokes that there has not been a movie written about a serial killer since Seven that he has not received the script for and an offer to direct. Wow, interesting. He is the, ser- he is the serial killer guy. <laughs> Mr. Mindhunter, yep. Mindhunter, Zodiac, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I mean, his next movie is called The Killer, but I believe it's about <laughs> assassins, not um, not serial killers, but... You know, he, if Alien 3 feels like a direct, director for higher work, this was the, that was the last one. Mm-hmm. Everything else he has done has been meticulous and by choice. And we are going to cover all of them. I guess the question we want to think about going forward is, how does he battle being a salesman and an ad man while also being an artistic cinematic auteur? David Fincher views himself as a outsider, a troublemaker, a provocateur, you can tell from his yeah, interviews. Little stinker. Yeah. And yet <laughs> there are few directors more inside Hollywood than him. Mm, it's an interesting dichotomy. 
It is. Few directors who continue to make like Budweiser commercials. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess he knows where his bread's buttered. He does, you know, and you know, he has to, yeah, has to make dough. Although it is a fact, he is also among, if not the most highest-paid directors in mm. Hollywood. Too. The reason he did not direct Steve Jobs was his asking rate. Despite the fact that everyone wanted him for Steve Jobs after um, Social Network. Social Network. Yeah, man, he, God, he would have him. Because, like, uh, I think The Killer has Fassbender in it, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. So, like, and did they, had they ever, um, I don't think they'd ever collaborated before no, The and Killer, they, right? And, and Fassbender was not um, on, you know, Fincher was already out by the time Fassbender was brought up for Steve Jobs. Gotcha. And I know that um, the everyone's number, the world well, number one was DeLeo, but number two was Christian Bale. And I think Christian Bale. Bale would have. He he was a good choice. Yeah. I don't Leo, know if Leo, Leo was, just, but Bale He's a great actor. I think Bale yeah. would have hit a home run. I think Michael Fassbender is extraordinary in it, though. But, Hear me but, out. Hear me out. Leo would have made, and this is going to sound, Leo would have made a great Wozniak. <laughs> yeah. I, and I know that sounds crazy, but. I think he actually, if he like gained a little weight and like, like, cause like his don't look up or whatever, there's a little bit of like manic nerd energy. He would have been this interesting is, in the. I don't think Leo's putting up for a second with David Fincher. Oh, really? That's my, that's my, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's my, that's my guess. Uh, completely uneducated guess that I think it takes an actor like, I don't know why Brad Pitt gets along with him so well. But there are plenty of stories like Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal have very little good things to say about their Zodiac experience. Wow. And it is because, you know, I don't know if he was doing as much in Seven, but we'll we'll definitely get to it as the it progresses here. One of the things David Fincher is most notorious for is doing 50 to 100 takes for everything. Yeah, I have. I remember like hearing about like the my um the way I was introduced to that knowledge was reading about this filming of the social network and how like Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara had to film their, like that their scene, scene together. Like, a, like was it 70 times, something mm-hmm. along those. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, he's a stinker. And, he, and he is a stinker about, it. he was talking about how gone girl. There's this scene at the bar where Ben Affleck and Carrie Coon are talking and she's having like French fries. Oh yeah. And he goes, she made the devastating mistake of not understanding who was directing this movie and eating on my set. No. So, but (laughs) if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it for a while, it's so worth it. It's so interesting and it fits right in because I don't think the fan, I don't think any of these movies and it makes the fan more disappointing in retrospective because the fan doesn't take it all the way. (laughs) I would like the, I do want, I I would love to see Robert uh, De Niro, Bobby. I'd love to see Bobby De Niro come into this world and just scream Bobby at someone. Yeah. And it just goes to show like, how material, how style, how time, yeah. how aesthetics all kind of combine to these different approaches that some work and some don't. Mm-hmm. But next week on the show, we are back to the Scott brothers. We are covering Domino from Tony Scott next week. Mm. And that is, of course, on Tubi. Yes. Our, our favorite streaming service. The, the, the People's Network. And it can also be rented or on disc. And then the week after that, we are to Ridley and... We're going to be watching a very interesting one, Matchstick Men. Ooh. 
I've never seen that, it. I want to. I want to see. I've only this. seen it once, and it, it had such an interesting effect on me because the twist I felt was such a um, I, such a betrayal. But I haven't seen it since this one time, so I'm I'm excited to get into it again. Interesting. I love the the, 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 the the twist too. Those three. Like, I love all those. I like Nicholas Cage, Sam Rockwell, Allison Lohman. That yeah, that was her name. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah, she. What a great actress that. Uh, you know, she just decided that she was done. Yeah, good for her. It's not worth yeah. it. Got out. She's <laughs> in the farm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she went back to the farm, not in the... Oh, this city. This um, city. <laughs> this city. Um, if you, like, think that Seven is completely unsuccessful, or, like I said, if this is your first time watching it and you have thoughts on the ending, yeah. send us an email at theacademyacademypodcast at gmail.com or at Twitter at theacadacad. Uh, great ep, great week. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to this series. I'm, as I think, you may have gotten... The, a big, big fan of, of Mr. Fincher, and um, I have a lot to say, so I'm excited to talk to you about. It. I'm, dude, I can't wait till I, I'm kind of bummed that we're not gonna, you know, we're gonna have to wait a couple weeks. I'm, yeah, I, I want to get into stretch more. Out. We'll, we'll, uh, the, the game at some point will be yep. next up. So, uh, for Patrick, I'm Don. I think, I think we unequivocally did settle what was inside that box. Yeah. So. It was those three seashells from Demolition Man. Indeed, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how do the shells work? <laughs> David Mills, poopy pants man as well. All right, <laughs> we'll talk to y'all next week. Bye. Son. Um.